0: And now here's your host, Sean Rost.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the R Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from R Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, R Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Jared Roll. He holds a Ph.D. in history from Northwestern University and presently serves as an associate professor of history at the University of Mississippi. He is the author of Spirit of Rebellion, Labor and Religion in the New Cotton South, The Gospel of the Working Class, Labor Southern Prophets in New Deal America, and most recently, Poor Man's Fortune, White Working Class Conservatism in American Metal Mining, 1850-1950. to 1950. He will be the keynote speaker at the 63rd Missouri on History, which will be held virtually from March 10th through the 12th, 2021. And to learn more about Jared's presentation and how to register for the Missouri Constant History, please visit shsmo.org/mch. Welcome to our Missouri, Jared. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, as someone who has studied and written about, you know, laborers and the working class, You know, what materials, monographs, articles, and primary sources did you encounter in your career and in your education and even experiences that helped shift your focus towards the study of labor and really a study of labor within the state of Missouri?
0: Well, this goes back really to the beginning for me as an undergraduate at Missouri Southern. We were assigned Nell Irvin Painters Standing at Armageddon, which is a great synthesis of the late 19th and early 20th centuries in, in the United States. Uh, that really puts labor history, uh, American radical history at the forefront uh, of her narrative. And in that book, she mentioned the appeal to reason, which was the leading socialist newspaper in the United States at the time, uh, around 750,000 subscribers nationally. And Nell Irvin Painter kind of offhandedly mentioned that this was published in Girard, Kansas, uh, which to me as an undergraduate student sitting in Joplin, Missouri in the late 1990s uh, was just astounding, it just blew my mind that the nation's largest circulating socialist newspaper was not headquartered in New York City or someplace like that, but actually Girard, Kansas, which uh, in the late 90s did not give any indications of being a socialist hotspot. Um, And so really that that led me down a whole path of investigating uh, the history of American radicalism more broadly and and particularly in Missouri. Uh, It led me to the summer after I finished at Missouri Southern, um, taking a, a research gig at Pittsburgh State University where the Appeal to Reason archival collection is held uh, it was discovered in a farmhouse in the 1970s and had never been fully processed with a finding aid uh, and I did that work uh, the summer after I graduated from Missouri Southern um, which kind of really set me up with a set of questions about American radicalism but also American working class history and, and the social and economic basis of those radical ideas particularly in um, the Midwest, uh, and in Missouri in particular, which is what I turned to in my, my first semester of graduate study uh, uh, for a research
1: paper. Now, looking in at, at your first book, Spirit of Rebellion, tell us about the origins of that book project.
0: Yeah, the origins come out of that first semester research paper, which is inspired by the Appeal to Reason and Irvin Painter. I was interested in exploring the Socialist Party in Missouri in the early 20th century. And I'd envisioned a comparative study of German socialists in St. Louis with this rural socialist movement that I'd learned about in Southeast Missouri, Missouri Bootheel. Uh, and I just happened to start on the Bootheel part of that project, maybe because I, I don't speak German, but I started on the Bootheel side of that project first and discovered this really rich history of rural labor, political organizing, often very radical in the Socialist Party in the nineteen teens, but stretching from, from the early 20th century all the way through the 1930s and 1940s that revolved around the efforts of farming people, small landowners, renters, sharecroppers. Um, to try to gain hold of of land ownership in this period. And and the radicalism came in as part of their efforts um, uh, to deal with the reality that that land ownership was, was becoming less and less possible for them. So that first seminar paper that was looking at socialism in Southeast Missouri, then turned over a couple of years into my entire dissertation was looking at rural radicalism in the boot heel uh, from the the late 19th century all the way through uh, the 1940s.
1: Now something that's so striking especially in looking at the population in that portion of Missouri in the boot heel is that as we get into the 20th century there is a major population movement and influx in that part of the state. So tell us a little bit about that migration of people into the area.
0: So up until really 1900, the boot heel was mostly f- flooded swampland, um, ancient old growth forest that had never been cut, uh, sitting in, you know, kind of fetid flood water, swamp water that was replenished on a fairly uh, regular basis by Mississippi River floods. But in the early 20th century uh, railroad companies got access to that land very cheaply and began, uh, spun off these uh, timber subsidiaries uh, that came in to cut the timber, sell the timber. Um, And then they were kind of left over with these flooded swamp lands with stumps in them. Um, And they rented out plots of land then to small farmers, uh, family groups uh, to clear the stumps and make that land farmland. And so tens of thousands of farmers, farming families, people leaving what seemed like hopeless situations in other areas, first really the lower Ohio River Valley, but also the Ozarks generally, came to Southeast Missouri to take advantage of this situation in hopes that they would be able to work their way up to land ownership, to be able to claim some of this rich boot heel land from their own, for for their own. And this first wave of migrations really 1890s through the 19 teens is mostly white uh, families uh, from the Ozarks, from the Ohio River Valley. Uh, But their success uh, opened up in the late teens, the possibility of of larger scale agriculture for those who owned the land. And they began turning what were corn and wheat farms uh, over to cotton and to effect of that transformation, landowners uh, began recruiting African-American families from lower down in the Mississippi River Valley, from eastern Arkansas, western Tennessee, uh, the Mississippi Delta, um, to bring their expertise in cotton to kind of install this cotton uh, revolution. So again, then another wave of tens of thousands of rural families arrived in southeast Missouri. Uh, They too coming with this expectation that working up what was known as the agricultural ladder, they could move from sharecropping to tenant farming to renting, and then one day to land ownership in their own right. So two very different kind of sources of this in-migration, but really driven by the same central idea, and that was acquiring land uh, to become independent producers for, the, for themselves, but also for their families.
1: Now, something that's quite striking with these agricultural laborers is that in many cases, they're trying to work together and they're trying to improve the lives and the safety around them, not just simply for themselves, but for a kind of a collective group. What is really the, this activism, this effort to work together? Where does this come from, you think?
0: Well, so they, they arrive first I mean, their collective efforts are really community building efforts. So these are migrants, you know, they're not they're not coming in in connected ways. It's a family by family decision, Um, but they're coming from different places and they're arriving in in the boot heel without towns, without established community institutions. So really the first collective efforts is to build those communities. Um, Family groups were central to that, but Family groups then united in social institutions, particularly the church, uh, is important for both white and black migrants to boot heel. Um, But then migrants kind of learn some quickly, some not quickly that the road they think they're on to land ownership, to rural agrarian independence is at best gonna be a long road and at worst isn't even possible
1: Anymore that,
0: that the grip of the large landowners in the boot heel, the grip of the railroads um, just, just means that they're locked in permanent dependence as, as landless farmers. And so they turn to social and political alternatives um, to try to challenge the power of those who are in charge in the boot heel. Uh, white farmers in the 19-teens, uh, many of them turn to the socialist party kind of really being attracted to this radical critique of American capitalism, but also its application in large-scale kind of plantation agriculture. Um, they uh, uh, vote for socialist politicians, you know, electing um, local officials in, in some boot heel towns, um, but also turning to extra political violence, using the Socialist Party as a, as a way to organize uh, armed attacks, uh, armed threats against landowners as a way to try to compel a better deal. African-American farmers follow a a similar path, you know, establishing family groups on the ground, building communities, anchoring those communities in in church and school institutions that that they're developing uh, within the confines and limitations of of Jim Crow, uh, which... Uh, the boot heels is, is racially segregated at the time. Um, and they too find that their uh, path to land ownership or to some kind of independent rural existence or semi-independent rural existence is, is blocked and, and horribly troubled. And so in the nineteen teens, they turned to uh, Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association which is based around ideas of black nationalism of black independence and self-determination, and even armed self-defense, often against uh, poor white farmers who are organizing for extra political violence in the Socialist Party. So, Garveyism and Black nationalism by the 1920s seeks to reinforce and strengthen those efforts that uh, uh, self, kind of self-contained self-governance insulating themselves from white society as much as as possible in this quest for uh, uh, land ownership and rural independence. Now, as I I show in the book, both of these strategies break down in the 1920s, particularly uh, when the Great Depression starts to hit, like nobody's on the road to rural independence. And these kind of race-based responses to the crisis don't work either. They they, they both failed. And so then we see in the 1930s a turn to labor unionism, particularly through the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, um, and through social institutions like new revivalist churches, Pentecostal churches, um, kind of insurgent, unaffiliated Baptist churches, holiness congregations, as this, this, these rural people in the boot heel, kind of, reach into whatever resources they have available um, uh, to try to find a new way to hold on to some of those agrarian dreams and ambitions that uh, they brought with them. In some cases, organizing interracially. So the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, um, really in, the, in the, the Southern part of the in Pemiscot County, uh, is able to, to form um, organizations with white and black farmers. Really a remarkable thing, I think, overcoming the earlier history of uh, of racial division and and often white violence against African-American
1: farmers. Now, in looking at the boot heel today, how is this area, its politics, its communities, its people, how are they impacted by this earlier community building and activism from the early to mid-20th century?
0: So the first thing I'd point to there is the land itself. The, the work of turning those swampy, stump-filled, you know, just just kind of wasteland into productive farms that provided the base as made possible, the large-scale uh, kind of, you know, large-scale farms that, that have since been mechanized, mechanized in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, that's all made possible by the, the hard back-breaking work of, families of farmers working with their, their hands and, and maybe a mule or two uh, over the period of about 30 or 40 years. Um, so to me, that's the first kind of living legacy is the land itself. Like they they built the boot heel uh, as it is. Um, for African-American uh, communities, uh, these organizing efforts led to a local civil rights movement um, beginning in the nineteen 19- 30s, really, with the the revival of the NAACP in the area, but even going back into the 20s to Marcus Garvey's movement, um, but but, uh, maintaining a coherent movement into the 1950s and 1960s. I would also say, though, that there's a a legacy of what was lost, of their lost visions. Uh, So these efforts to attain land, you know, by thousands of people to, to have small family farm, independent um, farms across the land, that, that vision did not come to pass for the most part. Um, instead, the boot heel being given over to really large-scale mechanized agriculture, or agribusiness, as we might call it now, um, that forced many or most of these people off the land to area towns, um, where, where, where many of those families still reside, but for the most part, further afield to, to cities like St. Louis or Chicago, are really a dispersal of, of this rural population that, that came to the bootheel with such great hopes in the early 20th century. So the things they advocated for, like uh, government support for rural housing projects for farm families, they, they won some of those efforts, the Delmo housing communities, a series of federally-backed communities built in the 30s and 40s. Some of those are the basis for actual towns still today, um, but also things like a, a regional public health service, uh, kind of kind of nationalized health care, though on, just on a regional basis was one of the things that uh, this rural movement advocated for in the 1930s and 1940s that came to pass for a while but was subsequently defeated. Um, so, you know, when I think about these legacies, I think about what's there and what's not there. What, what did people want? What were the alternatives that could have been, uh, but that were defeated? And I think the boot heel kind of gives us a, a powerful representation of, of both of those things.
1: And looking at your new book, Poor Man's Fortune, we kind of shift a little bit along that southern border of Missouri over to the western half and the southwestern half. So, what drew your attention to this tri-state mining district?
0: When I came up with this idea for this project to look at miners in the tri-state district, I was teaching in the United Kingdom and I just finished Spirit of Rebellion and the kind of related book *Gospel to Working Class uh, which came out of Spirit of Rebellion, um, but, but wanted to do a new project, wanted to do an archival project, um, something different but not too different and I, I needed to find a way to do the research while based in the United Kingdom. And so, and I had a small child at the time. And so I thought, well, I should do something that's close to my parents so I could, you know drop my child and, and then go do research. So I was looking at Southwest Missouri um, generally uh, but then was in Seneca, Missouri in, in 2008 for a wedding. This wedding was, was badly disrupted by the tornado that hit Pitcher, Oklahoma. Um, uh, at the same time and and kind of almost wiped out the wedding. And and this tornado that hit Pitcher, it turned out, was the kind of natural disaster that ultimately gave the federal government uh, power to clear out the town of Pitcher, which had been suffering from environmental damage, environmental degradation for decades. But where the people had actively and consistently resisted Federal efforts through the EPA to kind of address this environmental legacy of mining in the in the district. So this tornado comes through and damages a bunch of houses and gives the federal government the, the leverage to finally buy out the residents. A picture and this is around the time of the 2008 election. Um, you know debates over Obamacare, things like that. And so I was I became interested in this long-standing effort to resist federal help to uh, remedy environmental damage. That was a legacy of the the mining industry. And so I began kind of from a very contemporary perspective and soon learned that this was not new in the 1980s and uh, 1990s, this resistance to the EPA, but actually uh, discovered a a series of similar processes and responses of anti-government thought and action an anti-labor union thought and action going all the way back to the 1890s, not just in Oklahoma, but in the Missouri part of the tri-state district in Jasper, Newton, and Lawrence counties as well. And and to kind of understand that, then I realized I had to go further back. And and ultimately, I kind of went all the way back to the beginnings of the tri-state district in the late 1840s and
1: 1850s. In looking really at, at, at Missouri history, you know, there's often a focus when it comes to mining on that kind of lead belt area, south of St. Louis. We could think of communities around St. Francis County, Iron County, even down in Madison County. And yet, how did this tri-state mining district really much farther down Southwest Missouri, how did that develop in the 19th century? So
0: in the 1840s, uh, when area farmers, the farmers in Southwest Missouri, they they, they they basically hit surface lead with their plows, discovered it on the banks of, of creeks and rivers where the water kind of un, uncovered it. Many of these uh, lead kind of surface lead mines have been worked by the Osage and, and previous Native American inhabitants of the region. This was on the Western boundary of the United States. So, you know, we're talking 10, 15 miles to what was then Indian territory or after 1854, Kansas territory. So the the lead that was discovered was rich on the surface but very fragmented, but also very far removed from markets. So St. Louis is the nearest market but there was no railroad to Southwest Missouri. It was just a long, really long and brutal wagon ride. You know, if, if you imagine like How much lead you need to put in a wagon to make money off of it and how long it takes to take a wagon from what would be Joplin to St. Louis, just really tough. Um, And so this kept out bigger investors, the kind of investors that would would go into the the eastern Missouri lead belt, where, where you had easy rail access to the Mississippi River and ultimately the smelters in St. Louis, that was delayed. And so that allowed individual prospectors, small groups of working miners, and many of whom who came from eastern Missouri, or they came from the upper Mississippi lead mines in, in Wisconsin and Iowa and Illinois. And they came, found their way to southwest Missouri, where the land was sparsely settled, the federal government had cleared out Native Americans, much of the land was in public land, there's no real government on the ground. They're able to uh, exploit, discover and exploit, explore these lead deposits and turn themselves into fairly successful owner-operator miners. These are, are small mines, shallow, so they can be operated by human muscle or animal muscle. And actual working miners could then literally own the product of their labor and sell it on national markets that they, they devised a way to get to um, by actually by floating the, the ore west on rivers like the Spring River and then down the Arkansas River and Mississippi to New Orleans and then eastern markets. So the small-scale method of mining, first as prospectors, then as small working partnerships, um, owner-operators, uh, created this ethos in Southwest Missouri, uh, and then in Southeast Kansas as the kind of pattern of discovery, uh, as, as more and more miners came and kind of fanned out across the uh, landscape, um, created this ethos that, that this was a poor man's camp, a place where uh, a man with, with no or little working capital but an appetite for risk, an appetite for hard work could come and become independent and perhaps become wealthy, uh, which was really different from most mining districts in the United States, where very quickly large corporations uh, brought in heavy machinery, heavy capital investment, um, obliterating any chance of owner-operator miners. Um, But but that poor man's camp ethos was actually based in reality in the tri-state district. And that reality persisted from the early 1850s, really all the way up to the early 1890s, about 40 years of successive generations of miners uh, able to achieve this vision. First mining lead, then by the late 1870s and after, mining zinc. Um, But And it's really that process of zinc that led to many of these small owner operator mining companies to begin to invest in more and more machinery, still rudimentary compared to the Eastern Missouri Lead Belt or, or mines across the West um, that ultimately would close off the poor man's camp opportunities for the vast majority of working miners by the 1890s.
1: Something that's so fascinating, I think, with what you found with these mining communities and these miners, is really how they stand on major issues surrounding their own life, and you touched on this a little bit. I mean, we could think of the agricultural laborers of the boot you know, working together to bring about, you know, attempts at unionization, attempt at intervention, and even the story of laborers nationwide in the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries is is typically a story about, you know, workers' rights, workers' coordination, and unionization. Yet, how did these miners in the tri-state mining district look at outside help or outside efforts at unionization or even outside attempts to improve what might be their working conditions? So miners in the tri-state district in
0: this poor man's camp period in the 1850s to 1890s, they came to the district to make money. And many of them found it possible to be owner operators and participate in capital markets, you know, to sell their own ore for market rates um, in ways that uh, many other miners could not at the time. And, and they found their way through that to a kind of independence, kind of working independence as hard as workers, right? Because many of them are often in the mine mining along with maybe a few employees, four or five employees, um, but also as owners. So they're then selling the ore, making profits. So they come to really value that entry point into capitalism itself. And they see uh, through their their work, their risk taking, um, and in time through their race, because in Southwest Missouri, the vast majority of these miners are white, and the vast majority of those are native born whites, uh, come to see that the promise of capitalism is is still possible for them. Very late in the day, the 1890s, even into um, the 20th century. And what's key to that is they reject anything that they think restrains their um, uh, chances in capitalism anything that they think restrains their realization of the promise of the poor man's camp. Um, They resist government regulation. So coal miners in northern and western Missouri are able to pass mining codes in the 1880s um, that stipulate things like safety devices in the mines or, or ventilation tunnels. The miners in southwest Missouri resisted those measures, resisted those regulations, um, saw them as a threat to their small business models. Right? You know, there's a lot of sources where they're saying, you know, we, we can't afford these things. This is going to bankrupt our, uh, our mining companies and thus bankrupt the promise of this poor man's camp. So, so they resist government regulation that they think is a threat to their business, uh, but they also resist labor unions and, and labor organizers. Uh, many of which start to filter into the area really in the early 1880s from the Knights of labor um, and are able to convince a small minority of miners in the tri-state district to join but ultimately at first at least most tri-state miners saw labor unions as simply irrelevant as, as something that miners in other places where they didn't have the kinds of poor man's camp chances that existed in the tri-state needed to survive, that, that this was irrelevant to their, their chances uh, in the Tri-State District. Um, but as those chances began to close in the 1890s, really in the depression of the 1890s, Tri-State miners were, were not opposed to going to other places and working as strike breakers. So they resist outside restraints in the form of regulations or in the form of labor union organizers coming into the tri- tri-state district. But they don't then say, well, it's wrong for us to go to Leadville, Colorado as they did in 1896 to work as strike breakers, uh, to kind of weather this depression in the 1890s. But what those strike breaking efforts do is kind of expand their risk-taking, their chance-taking, their a mental vision of of what is acceptable and what's possible for them as white men. And ultimately that means by the early 20th century that basically anything they want to do that uh, benefits them economically, really no matter what consequence it has for anyone else is fine. And they justify that through uh, ideas about work, ideas about risk-taking that go all the way back to the the beginnings of the tri-state district but also with new aggressive assertions of, of white native-born prerogative, uh, particularly against foreign-born minors, uh, a majority of, of minors in the Western Federation of Minors, which is the big ultimately radical labor union in the Western United States, are foreign-born, they begin to justify their strike-breaking against the Western Federation of Minors as the kind of um, birthright of free-born white American men. And so this is a way that they keep the poor man's camp ideal alive, even though the reality of the poor man's camp was no more.
1: Now, thinking about the development of mining in the areas you talked about, and even we look at a place like Joplin. I mean, Joplin arguably is a mining town that grows into a major community, obviously, later on. You could even think of sports teams in Joplin. I think there was a minor league baseball team called the Miners for a while. It certainly is built into a community like that. So how has this history of mining, history of really this uh, poor man's fortune, history of these, of these mining communities really impacted this area of Southwest Missouri?
0: Yeah, so uh, very basically the mines, the poor man's camp, this whole history of, of mining uh, discovery, is why most of these towns exist, from Granby to Webb City, Carterville, uh, Orinogo, Joplin, Galena, Kansas, Pitcher, Oklahoma. These towns would not have existed uh, like they exist today uh, without the mining. Um, this is a, a region that's, the, the basic framework of the region's laid down on the geology of the mines and, and the the, the manner and pattern in which they were mined. So I think that's important just as a, just a beginning, thinking about the, the landscape, where people live, where these towns are, all determined by the, the nature and pattern of the mining. Uh, there has been obviously a, a catastrophic environmental cost to this lead and zinc mining heritage um, that has and continues to affect um, towns in Southwest Missouri, Uh, southeast Kansas and Ottawa County, Oklahoma, um, particularly Pitcher where um, the the deepest, richest ore was discovered in the 19-teens and and thus where the kind of environmental degradation uh, is worst. But if you look at, like go to Google Maps and look at the satellite view of Southwest Missouri, you can pan back pretty far and you can still see the barren soil Uh, that's been ultimately poisoned by mining waste that even though that a lot of that's been remediated and and fixed by the EPA over the years, you can, you can overlay a mining map from say 1910 on a map of Southwest Missouri satellite map today, and you can see exactly where these mines were. Uh, So uh, that, that is a, a powerful and important legacy as well. And I would say that these communities, are, to me at least you know, I'm from Lawrence County, so from Mount Vernon. So you know 35 miles east of Joplin, I went to college in Joplin. that Joplin, Webb City, Carterville, these places have always felt differently to me than Springfield, you know, 30 miles east of where I come from. There's always, it's always been a much, I don't know, much more working class feel to these places. Springfield, in a way, feels more cosmopolitan. But Joplin and, and Web City and Carterville still to me have that grit that comes from these mining communities and comes from this history. Um, and it's one that is has been what what I call a working class conservative culture, not since the 1960s, you know, kind of backlash against civil rights and the great society, but but going all the way back uh, to the middle of the 19th century. And I I still think you can see can feel and hear and see traces of that in those places today that that even though the history of conservatism in the United States has tended to, to blend areas together, right, to make Missouri, for instance, seem or sound politically a lot like Mississippi, um, you know, where, where I teach, I think you can still, the the grasp and, and sense those gradations of difference that, that echo this history in southwest Missouri itself.
1: I, I want to think about in some ways your entire work kind of over the last decade plus, even 20 years, you know, as you're going through these materials to think about projects and, and to really flesh out your writing and develop your research, you know, historians and researchers tend to find materials that are kind of a wow factor, something that really not only they kind of catch their eye at the moment, but really inspires and shapes their writing and their work. What's a wow factor or a wow moment from your latest book that really kind of caught your attention and, and shaped what you were doing?
0: That's a great question. Uh, there, I mean, there are a lot of them. So I would just say overall, my, my first real wow moment as scholar doing research, you know, on a, in graduate school was, was not a one source, but was actually a collection of sources. And that was the newspaper microfilm collection at the State Historical Society of Missouri, which I think is an absolute treasure of a resource. And now, you know, that's just, just going there as a graduate student, kind of walking those aisles with those cabinets full of microfilm, being able to pull those out dive deep into the history of, of the boot heel, you know, then cross-reference things with, with things from St. Louis newspapers. I mean, that just blew my mind. And, and really, I think that's a, a jewel that really stands out from research in most other states. You know, I've been to Oklahoma, I've been to Kansas, I've been to other places, and really the resources of the State Historical Society of Missouri uh, shine above them all. And so that's what I would say, first of all. Uh, oh, and, you know, just a lot of those papers have been digitized now too. So this last project, I, I, I was able to delve even deeper into those resources in, in a way through digitized papers that are now keyword searchable, you know, what had taken weeks before of, you know, sifting through, you know, literally kind of blinding myself with microfilm readers. Now you're able to type in keywords and, and get there much, much faster. Um, so, so that is a jewel that just keeps getting shinier. Um, But one really important one, uh, wow moment happened actually in New York City at NYU's Tamament Library, which is um, one of the most amazing collections of labor and, and radical materials in the United States. And I was in the process working with my colleague Eric Gelman on, on the Gospel of the Working Class, which is a, a dual biography of two Southern preachers, one white, one African-American, and, and their kind of radical application of evangelical Christianity. Um, but one of those preachers, Owen Whitfield, um, who uh, lived and, and, and worked for a long time in the Boot Bootheel and then in St. Louis, um, is, is one of those preachers. But his partner, his wife, Zella Whitfield, was a key collaborator and partner to him in much of his activism and ministry, but her words, her voices never really came through in the documentary evidence that I'd come across while working on Spirit of Rebellion or or that I'd come across since then um, um, looking deeper into Owen Whitfield himself, but I was at the Tamament, and they had a oral history collection. Um, They have a bunch of of great oral history collections. They had had one that was oral history collection 500, which is kind of unprocessed, uncatalogued oral histories on cassette tapes, on video reels, transcripts. Um, And in this finding aid, one of these cassettes said it was a recording of a family interview with Zella Whitfield from the 1980s. And it just, I'm not sure how it got there, but I'd never, and I wasn't even really looking for it, but it just blew my mind that there was this cassette tape, but it was in the unprocessed collection, which was in this warehouse, not at NYU, but down the street in, in midtown Manhattan. And the archivist let us go and kind of plow through this, dig through this box, these boxes of unprocessed oral histories. And then I found finally this cassette tape. So we had to leave the warehouse and then come back to NYU and then actually get to listen to it. And it was two-sided, you know, 60-minute family conversation of Zella Whitfield in the early 1980s with her children talking about her history and Owen Whitfield's history of activism and ministry um, in the boot heel. And it's in that discussion where she talks about how they used to go to, meetings of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association in Mississippi County in the late 1920s, but that they they were never members because they couldn't afford to join, but they were really gripped by the ideas. And I'd always suspected that the Whitfields had been influenced by Garveyism, but I'd never found any documentary evidence because they'd never joined. So they never showed up in membership lists. But here in this cassette tape that you know, just by absolute sheer luck, I found was not only evidence that they had belonged to the UNIA, but here was Zella Whitfield in her own voice, the thing that had eluded so much of my research. I'll just really never forget that experience of, of discovering that, of listening to that, of, of processing it, all in this very non-bootheel context of Midha- Midtown Manhattan.
1: That's, that's where that really is impressive. I, I'm audibly saying, wow, right now, that is uh, amazing to think about and finding something you thought was not there. And then all of a sudden you have the person's actual voice telling you what they were doing in the 1920s and 1930s. I think that's, that's absolutely fascinating.
0: And it's oral history. You're an oral historian, Sean.
1: That yes. just, just, just (laughs) Just testament to the importance of those interviews. Uh, yes, I completely, completely agree. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and telling about uh, all your fascinating work. Uh, I I've enjoyed all of it and I, it's helped shape the way I research and the way I teach. So thank you very much for joining me.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org
1: forward slash our dash Missouri.